Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at www.mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, and joining us for a special update on COVID will be infectious disease and public health expert, Dr. Paul Carson of Fargo, North Dakota, and critical care pulmonologist, Dr. Eustace Fernandez of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Together, they'll give us the big picture and the patient close-up view of the meaning and impact of the Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, and you know, for many of our listeners who have been through this with us, um, we did a whole lot of COVID uh, last year and even into the beginning of this year. And I was so excited to be done with COVID. And uh, <laughs> I think a lot of us felt that way. Let's, that's a wrap. Put a fork in it. Um, turns out it does not appear that way anymore. I know just in my practice here in Northeast Indiana, we're seeing a lot more patients coming in with COVID. And in some ways, I'm, I'm surprised by some patients look a lot sicker than even the first round in the practice that I've had. So that plus a lot of listener questions, what does Delta mean? Why don't the vaccines work like everybody said they would, or do they? And we just don't understand. We've had enough questions that we say, although I wish it was all over, we've got to revisit this coronavirus epidemic, pandemic. What do you say, Tom? It's time. Yes. Uh, I thought we were uh, leaving pandemic and epidemic stage and entering endemic. That appears to have been put on hold. We'll get uh, more information on that from our uh, infectious disease public health expert, uh, Paul Carson, uh, soon. But uh, in the last week, and we are recording on Monday evening, August 23rd. And as of now, uh, last August 19th, the Pope uh, was on a public a service announcement video with six Spanish-speaking uh, American uh, archbishops and cardinals from L.A., Mexico City, Honduras, Brazil, El Salvador, and Peru. In this, uh, the Pope said, quote, getting the vaccines that are authorized by the respective authorities is an act of love for self, families, friends, and all peoples. He says, I pray to God that each one of us can make his or her own, her own small gesture of love. No matter how small, love is always grand. That's what he says. Uh, I have heard from uh, some of my colleagues that within a several months, everybody will either have had COVID because of the Delta variant infectiousness or be vaccinated. Current data from the CDC. How many adults vaccinated, Andrew? I think uh, over 200 million, 73% had at least one dose and 59% are fully vaccinated. And in the over 65 group, that's even higher, 91% with one dose, 81% fully vaccinated. Uh, but now cases are on a steep increase. We're at over half the number of new cases a day we saw at the peak back in January. So over 130,000 new cases a day. The highest average we had in January was a quarter million. Delta variant, what percent of those cases? Yeah, 99%. 99%. Hospital admissions now at one-third of the peak per day compared to January's peak. Deaths are at about 650 per day, 20% of the peak. Uh, I was passed along some interesting information from Paul Carson and Paul Cieslak, and that is on the percent of people that have been already infected based on a uh, study of blood donations what do we have, and uh, other uh, blood tests. Andrew, what's... Uh, What's cogent from this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It, it would look like the Midwest has a strong showing of people who have already had COVID, with Ohio being number one and Indiana being number two, with 37 and 32 respent, uh, percent, respectively, of seropositive blood donations. And that's maybe about half the people being fully vaccinated. And so in spite of this, the numbers are spiking. And that's the thing that I, I think most of us find really worrisome. You know, I, I've kind of had an ominous thing where I get these emails uh, a couple days a week from the hospital. And through the whole last year, you'd see how many people are hospitalized with COVID, how many people on the ventilator. And they got down, I want to say in June to maybe like less than a dozen people at the hospital, our big hospital in town. And now every week they're going up. I got one this morning. So there's 150. And um, that's not at the, the height yet by any means, but 
what's going on? I thought this was all over. Yeah, uh, probably a lot of you and a lot of us have COVID fatigue, but the virus doesn't care how we feel, sad to say. Uh, and by the way, at the lowest uh, percent infected among the states is Vermont at 4%, which is also one of the highest states for vaccination. Oregon is uh, near them at 7%. And what are these variants? What's this Greek alphabet soup? Well, there was the original variant uh, a year and a half ago, and then the alpha variant was the one that was at one time branded the UK United Kingdom variant. Beta would have been the South African, gamma, Japanese or Brazil, and delta was the one that ravaged India which uh, apparently it's uh, two to two and a half times more infectious than the uh, original variant. But we'll get better numbers on that after the break. But before the break, our medical trivia question of the day, category Greek for science lovers. The Greek symbol for a capital delta is a triangle. When this symbol is found in science and math equations, it has a specific meaning. What is that meaning? A hint. The answer tells us what the Delta variant has done to the course of the pandemic. We'll be back with our experts after the break here on Dr. Doctor to inform you about the Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus. We now have online Paul Carson and Eustace Fernandez. They've been here before. Instead of a further introduction, let's get right to it. Paul, how is Delta worse than the other variants of COVID? Well, it's uh, become quite clear that it's much more contagious than the other variants. Uh, initial estimates were that the alpha variant was about twice as contagious as the earlier strains, and Delta is about twice as contagious as uh, 50, 50 to, to 70% more contagious than alpha. It's, so we're kind of looking at it at a minimum twice as transmissible as the earlier variants, and it's, it's really showing. Is it more deadly? Uh, that's a maybe. Uh, there, there's. I don't think we have high quality evidence on is it more pathogenic, but I think there's some reasons to to think that it could be. So one was a study out of Scotland that showed 85% higher hospitalizations with the Delta variant compared to earlier variants, and and we have a now another study that showed that we carry about a thousand fold more virus in our nose and in our pharynx. Um, with the Delta variant than earlier variants. And if you have a lot more virus, that often can explain why it's more contagious. So you get a lot more virus in small, smaller droplets. And oftentimes higher viral loads do correlate with uh, worse, worse pathogenicity or worse disease. And so I think it probably is uh, uh, worse uh, on both fronts. Paul, what is a different variant is this a different disease? Is this a different subtype? What is a variant? Yeah, yeah so that, that's a, actually kind of a murky definition. But so the way um, virologists talk about this, it's not a different species. It's not a different disease. It's when viruses replicate, <clears throat> some of them do it with great fidelity, meaning they replicate a perfect copy of themselves. Um, and some viruses do it very sloppily. And typically, single-stranded RNA viruses like this one is, tend to be kind of sloppy. And so they make mistakes and you get these mutations. And so little bitty changes in the RNA of the virus. And those changes, most of the time, aren't helpful to the virus. But every once in a while, it is helpful. That's sort of evolution or natural selection for a fitter virus, a, a virus more able to infect and to spread. And uh, this Delta um is, uh, is that. And the variants of concern are called that because they, one, either are able to be transmitted more easily, more infectious, or two, they're more able to escape immunity to prior infections or prior vaccines. And so there's, you know, a few variants of concern right now. Delta is by far the most prominent one. Now, the original or some of the data presented by the CDC for this level of contagiousness was a, a province town, Massachusetts study, which was based on human behavior that is not typical of most people. Uh, is there other data besides this study that would support that it truly is that contagious? Yeah. So I, I think actually the, the main message of that province town out, outbreak, and just to kind of maybe let the listeners know a little bit about that. Uh, CDC published a report on uh, an outbreak in on Cape Cod and Provincetown that um, 
had, I think it was a little over uh, 400 uh, people who came down uh, in a short period of time over 4th of, July, 4th of July holiday festivities there. And most of them were vaccinated, a little over 75%. So the, the thing about the Provincetown outbreak wasn't so much about how transmissible it is. It was more the concern about, wow, it seems like to be in a lot of vaccinated people. Um, so we'll come back to that in a second. But the data uh, about more transmissible has really come out of the UK, out of India, and and the modeling for um, how many people get infected from an index case. And there's there's some good studies that have looked at that, for example, in households. And it's like twice as many household contacts will typically get infected with Delta than earlier uh, strains. So we're talking about how contagious Delta is. True or false, if, if you aren't immune, you're going to get it. Yeah, I think that's very likely now. I, that's what I say in all my talks, that um, you're going to have a, a, a choice. If you're not vaccinated and you have not been previously infected, meaning you don't have any immunity of any kind, you're either going to get the virus or you're going to get the vaccine um, at some time in, in the you know not too distant future. Um, the, the numbers say it maybe approaches the infectiousness of chickenpox. You know, before the chickenpox vaccine, we all got chickenpox by the time we were like four or five years old, like almost everybody. This will be the same. And I think in a matter of three to six months, if you haven't been infected and you haven't been vaccinated, you're going to very likely be infected with this. And is that likely when this becomes endemic instead of pandemic, endemic like influenza is now? Yeah. So, uh, yes, I think that's right, Tom. So, you know, Epidemic means you're seeing a higher number of cases over time than you would normally see. Well, COVID is not normal. We've never seen it before. So any new cases is an epidemic. A pandemic is when it's over large geographic areas. Well, it's worldwide, so it's a pandemic. Um, but at some point, it will settle down into a lower level of transmission um, where you're not seeing, where, where we have sort of an expected rate of ongoing infections, kind of like with influenza, and that's when we call it endemic. Okay, Eustace, let's uh, let's uh, hone down onto your hospital system where you take care of patients in the ICU. How has Delta changed things over the last several months? Yeah, so we had reached a point in June where we were feeling pretty good about things and our numbers were way down, and then in the last few weeks, they've been exploding. And this is people who are primarily unvaccinated and who have never previously been infected. And I would say that in our intensive care unit, the number is probably 97% of the patients in the intensive care unit have never been infected and have not been vaccinated. And of our patients who get sick enough that they need to go on, um, on a ventilator or need to go on more aggressive support called ECMO, 100% of those are unvaccinated never previously infected. Um, I've, uh, as a corollary to that, I would say that I've seen exactly zero intensive care unit admissions uh, as a reaction to a vaccine. So there are some concerns that people have about about vaccine safety and things like that, but I'm seeing 0% of that. Um, We are seeing a much younger patient population, but they can get very ill They have many of the comorbidities we talked about before, obesity, underlying lung disease, poorly controlled diabetes. And I think that those are still important basic health issues that we need to address. And um, and in our patients who are admitted to general medical floors, we're seeing some breakthrough uh, infections in fully vaccinated individuals, probably on the order of 10% of our patients who are admitted to the hospital for COVID. And, and those are patients who a year ago, a year ago, I would have predicted to do very, very poorly. These are people who are now coming in, they're ill, they're getting standard treatment, and then they're going home in a few days and going on, they're not going to nursing homes, they're not going to rehab centers, they're not needing the ventilator. So that for me, is a very big win. They're almost always over the age of 60 and almost always uh, have at least one of the comorbidities we've talked about before. Eustace, how, how many people are you seeing who've previously been infected with COVID now getting the Delta subsequently? Are you seeing many of those? No, I, I to date have admitted zero to the intensive care unit. And I'm not aware of any that have been admitted to our hospital. So to me, that indicates not that they can't get COVID again, but that there is some 
durable immune memory from their previous COVID infection, which to me seems reasonable to expect. Gotcha. Gotcha. Paul, are those the numbers that you've seen as well that the natural immunity gives some better protection against Delta? Yeah, I think um, I think we're seeing that either vaccination or prior infection both uh, confer really good protection against severe disease. We we are seeing that you can get what what are called breakthrough infections with either vaccination or prior infection. A couple of studies now suggest that you're about tw- you have about twice the risk of getting reinfected. Uh, if you've had prior infection compared to if you were vaccinated. But those infections tend to be a cold. They're, they're mild. Eustace, we've heard in the news that ICUs are filling up sometimes at capacity, both for adults and children. What do you know about that? Yeah, so we are always operating at margins in terms of our capacity for adult care. So whether it's care of a heart attack or a stroke or something else, we still have um, difficulty finding room in the inn, uh, per se. Now, with the extra surge of COVID patients, it's becoming even more challenging, um, not just with physical capacity, but actual staff to take care of these people and to attend to their needs. And what is the status of the staff? How are they feeling with this latest wave? How how is it affecting them? Well, it's uh, very, very deflating. You know, Last year was so incredibly difficult for the staff, and they're being asked to do so much more now, and we are dealing with a situation where we have a highly preventable condition, which is uh, preventable through vaccination, and it's just being sort of left on the doorstep. And so it's very demoralizing for the staff, and, uh, and the specter of burnout always looms large in our lives. Yeah, as I heard it said last week uh, when I got my hair cut, the world is short-staffed. Please uh, be kind to those who showed up. (laughs) And uh, I think a lot of people are feeling that. So, Paul, vaccine, big announcement today on the 19th. The Pfizer vaccine is officially approved by the FDA. What difference does this make? Well, uh, I think think it's pretty big because – it's now gone through all the this, the exact same process that any approved vaccine or drug uh, is expected to go through for full licensure. That means it's been it's met all the safety requirements, it's met the efficacy requirements. They've inspected all the facilities, they made sure the manufacturing process is right. They've reviewed all of the scientific documents with the adequate period of follow up. There's really no uh, reason people can you know. Like, like we've heard saying, it's an experimental vaccine. That's done. Um, and people that were saying, you know, I'm going to wait until it's, you know, uh, fully licensed, that's done. So I think that makes a big difference. And I also think we're probably going to see a lot of businesses and facilities using that as a, as a reason to uh, mandate the vaccine. Paul, you know, one of the questions I'm getting from a lot of the people who have not yet been vaccinated is, you know, the vaccines were billed as this 96% effectiveness, right? And now it turns out maybe it's more like half or two thirds, depending on the version. Um, Who's to say the next version is not going to be worse than that? Why should I still get a vaccine? Well, I I think there's some truth to the fact that we don't know what the next uh, version might be. Could it escape the current vaccine? That's a possibility. But the immediate threat to us is is bearing down on us from all sides. It's very real. Eustace's ICU is filling up. Hospitals in the South are uh, being overrun. They're ordering FEMA refrigerator tractor morgues in Texas on standby because they're very close to exceeding their morgue capacity. Um, If this might protect us from severe infection, that's reason enough to get it for this uh, clear and present danger, as Tom yeah. Clancy's you know old novel used to say. The the other thing I would just mention is that actually our immune system gets sort of good at learning from uh, you know these variants as they come. We we actually get better and better um, at sort of managing the next iteration of this with prior uh, vaccine exposure and prior virus exposure. So our ability to fend off the next change in this will be better. Um, and so I, I think there's every reason to still get vaccinated. Eustace, you wanted to add something. No, I just uh, wanted to add is that part of the 
the point is not to overwhelm the system, you know, and insofar as we can stop overwhelming the system with preventable diseases, um, and in this case, it's COVID-19, we should do those things in general um, when we provide medical care. But right now, we have vaccines that we know are, are effective against the Delta variant and will reduce uh, the swell of patients we're seeing in our emergency departments and in outpatient testing centers, et cetera. And that alone provides enough rationale. And, and Paul, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the, the more people we can successfully vaccinate, the less likely it is that an escape variant will develop at some point down the line. Um, and so to me, that provides another rationale for uh, getting people who are unvaccinated, previously uninfected, vaccinated. And the New England Journal had wonderful information. You know, the Alpha variant, Pfizer predicted against 94% of infection, 88% with Delta, but with Delta still, it's 96% effective against severe disease. That's incredible, isn't it, Paul? Very. And, and you know, just let's be clear about what Andrew just said a minute ago when he talked about falling efficacy you know, around 50% or two thirds, that's for infection. And that's in Israel. Israel's kind of reported like the lowest rates. Other countries, like you just said, the UK, Canada, aren't reporting that big of a drop. They're saying more down into the 80% range for infection against severe disease, which is really what we care about. Who cares if we right. put, you know, if we sort of downgraded uh, this to colds, if people get colds from it, okay. Um, if we keep people out of the hospital, if we keep people from getting severely ill, if we keep people from dying in the 90 plus percent range, which is what is showing everywhere, every country that's still looking at this, uh, the vaccines are still providing that 90 plus percent range protection against severe disease. That's a big win. That's a great vaccine. And as a corollary to that, you know, people like to talk about uh, the fact that, you know, it's a, it's a highly survivable disease. Um, but again, we've talked about it on the show before. What does that survival look like? Does it mean survival in a nursing home or dependent on dialysis or with a tracheostomy or with conditions like long COVID where you, you lose capacity to interact uh, normally with society, return to work and uh, to have a normal sleep-wake cycle and may actually have measurable loss in brain volume or in brain function. And, and these are all real things because we'll be walking around in these bodies for a long time. So we want to do more than survive. We want to flourish, right? I mean, I hope we'll all be walking around We're all around about flourishing, Eustace. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you will, Eustace. So, so, Paul, what do we know out of the millions of people who have gotten these vaccines? How safe are they really? So, um, one of the really frustrating things to us who study a lot of vaccines is, is to hear about, you know, I don't trust them. We need to see more long-term data or whatever. There's, there's never been a vaccine in history that has had this much scrutiny in this many people. You know, to have 200 million people in the United States vaccinated, it's approaching a billion, I think, worldwide. And we have new, not only our old uh, ways of sort of monitoring for vaccine safety. We've added new uh, ways of looking very hard for uh, serious adverse events, and they're stacking up remarkably well. I mean, there are there are some uh, serious adverse events, but they are rare, and we can talk about those more if you'd like. But uh, they are they are looking to be uh, among the safest vaccines that we've uh, we've used. What what does this mean when we're talking about the vaccines, uh, specifically the vaccines that have been, you know, most recently recommended to have a booster shot for? How does this work with the booster shot, and and why do we need that? Yeah, so let's first kind of uh, you know define what what is a booster, and what is uh, you know several vaccines in a primary series. So um, the booster has sort of been a, a misnomer for immunosuppressed people because uh, people who have significant immunosuppression just don't mount a very good immune response. They don't need a booster. They need a bigger primary series. They probably need a three and it might even be, who knows, we'll see. It might even be a four vaccine series. Um, you know, when you think about like uh, the uh, pertussis shot, uh, DPT shot, I mean, we give five of those to kids throughout, you know, their childhood. So getting a, a good immune response at the beginning is a primary series. And I think for immunosuppressed people, that's probably going to be at least three doses. A booster is for when you've gotten a good immune response, but it fades over time and you need a little kick uh, to kind of jumpstart it uh, down the road. And there is evidence <clears throat> that the antibody levels uh, may fade 
in healthy people, otherwise healthy people uh, with the two shot series. And we'll, we'll have to see how it sorts out. I, I, a person I really respect a lot, Paul Offit, just is really frustrated with, uh, he, he's a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a big vaccine expert. He's on the ACIP CDC's committee that reviews vaccine is, is very frustrated that everybody's talking about these boosters because the two shot series for the vast majority of people work great against preventing severe disease, which is our big goal. Uh, it may be that we'll want to be giving a booster to the elderly, to people with somewhat weakened immune systems, to people with a lot of comorbidities, um, you know, down the line. And, and uh, the other, I think the White House jumped the gun a little bit there, actually. Yeah, and I think the other group that we need to talk about when we talk about these boosters is is healthcare workers, um, because we certainly need people, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, etc., to remain healthy and to avoid severe disease. Um, and insofar as having a higher antibody uh, titer may correlate with uh, a reduced likelihood of of getting infected and getting severe disease, we preserve the integrity of our health care system. So that's another group. But I think, you know, the relative benefit of someone like me getting a booster is going to be different than a 16-year-old uh, getting a booster in terms of, you know, the risk-benefit calculation is going to be very different. Um, so I think Paul's right that there's going to be a, a time lag for us to figure out who needs what when. So Eustace, September 20th, if that booster becomes available for you, will you receive it? I will. I will. And and here's why. Um, I think it's important, like I said, to be able to continue to be available to take care of my patients. I also know that I may act as a vector of transmission of virus to someone who is vulnerable. So my population is extraordinarily vulnerable. Um, I think the risk to me is probably very low. Uh, I might feel lousy for a day, but I think that that's, I think it's the right thing to do. And it's part of, um, you know, the social contract of being a doctor and taking care of sick people. So that's, that's why I'm going to do it. And with that, we'll take a break and come back with more on COVID Delta variant here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking about COVID, unfortunately, still. Uh, however, fortunately, we're talking about it with good friends, Eustace and Paul, uh, favorites of the show. A few more things about the booster shots. You know, this is a Catholic show, and one of the things that we're really big on in, as far as social justice is uh, solidarity with the poor. And we're talking about almost a billion shots worldwide, but 200 million in America. Would it be smarter, Paul, for us to send some of our shots over to, I'm going to say, poorer countries rather than everybody getting a booster? You know, the World Health Organization asked the uh, richer countries that have good vaccine supply to please not be giving booster doses until most of the rest of the world has hit maybe 10% of their population uh, vaccinated. I think that's a, actually a very reasonable request. We have the ability to get anybody who wants it two doses, which will give 90 plus percent protection against severe disease. You might still get kind of a cold or mild flu-like illness, but you're not going to probably land in Eustace's ICU. I, I think we should do that. Now, you know, that's a policy decision above most of our pay grade here. Um, and so I, I would not recommend that people who might be eligible for a booster or that it's suggested to get a booster forego that in the, with the hope that that dose is going to somehow make it to Africa or South America or something like that. But I, I think we as Catholics should be advocating for that kind of solidarity with other countries that don't have what we have. I agree. Eustace, did you have something you wanted to add on boosters? No, I, I, I agree with uh, with Paul entirely. And I think myself or, or one of us getting a booster um, is, is going to be good for a number of reasons and vulnerable people getting it for a number of reasons is going to be a great thing, but it's not going to get us out of pandemic. Um, it's not going to get us out of this crisis mode. What's going to get us out of crisis mode is either, like Paul said earlier, everybody actually gets COVID and, and they're sort of rolling the dice or they get vaccinated and have a chance at avoiding infection or having mild disease. Those are the choices. So all of these talks about, about boosters and, and other mitigation factors are, I think they're important conversations to have. Um, but the square, pro the problem that's squarely in front of us is having good conversations with people who are vaccine hesitant and and trying to understand what their concerns are, addressing those in charity, and maybe moving some of those people into the vaccinated column before tragedy strikes them or they become a source of spread through our communities. 
Eustace, tell us about advances in treatment of COVID in non-hospitalized patients. So in non-hospitalized patients, we have the opportunity to give uh, monoclonal antibody therapy. So these are antibodies which bind to the M spike protein uh, on the COVID virus and and prevent uh, the virus from penetrating deep in the body. There's good data that suggests that particularly in patients who are vulnerable, if we can get this infusion into them sooner rather than later, um, we have the opportunity to keep their disease from progressing and to keep them from coming into the hospital. Now, this is available at most uh, emergency departments available at freestanding infusion centers, and uh, I've given it to a number of patients, and it is highly uh, effective. Uh, I can't can't think of any of the patients that I've provided this to or that I've written for it um, where they've ended up hospitalized or in the ICU following. Now, as a a corollary- qualifies for it? Sure. Um, So people with the comorbidities we've been talking about, people with- uh, with age greater than um, 60, uh, people with diabetes, high blood pressure, underlying lung conditions such as asthma, COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, um, and then there are a couple of other uh, minor conditions. So really any vulnerable population would be a good candidate um, for this and and, uh, people who who have obesity. Now, as a corollary to that, I want to mention that I've had several tragedies occur because non-approved, non-proven therapies were tried as an outpatient and patients worsened at home and resulted in in significant hospital stays and in some cases death. And these included um, treatment with with hydroxychloroquine, uh, zinc, and uh, ivermectin. So there's been a lot of buzz about these things and, and some people are choosing to do these things rather than seeking something which we know is effective, which is monoclonal antibody therapy. So when we talk about outpatient therapy, I feel like we need to talk about what works and what doesn't work. And, and I personally have seen several tragedies by, from, in patients who, who have elected to pursue these other therapies, which are unproven and actually have uh, um, a, an, uh, a body of clinical data um, showing that they actually do not work um, that is, is slowly building. And I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Paul. Yeah, I mean, you're referring to ivermectin. I think I get a, a text or an email from, you know, family or friends like every two days, like, you know, why won't you guys give ivermectin? <clears throat> and uh, and I don't know, it, it, you know, people are buying it at the fleet farm, you know, and the uh, at, in the you know horse animal. section, in the animal yes. section. And <laughs> I think now the number one call to poison control centers in the south uh, is over uh, toxicity and overdosing of ivermectin and people getting quite sick uh, from that. The, the, you know, there was like with hydroxychloroquine mixed data, you know, and the observational stuff. And then as we get higher quality data, it really doesn't look like it, it helps. I, I know of several people who were on it in the ICU and, and went on to die. Um, it, it, we would give it if we, if, you know, we in, in like Eustace in critical care, we in infectious disease. I mean, I've written for ivermectin all of my career as an antiparasitic. It just is not bearing up. There is a very good study being done in the UK that should have results in the near future on this, that's studying it in a very large, rigorous way that I think will lay it to rest. Uh, and, you know, it'd be great if it actually uh, helped or did something. I, they did that similar kind of work on hydroxychloroquine. I, I don't think it's going to bear up, unfortunately. So, Paul and Eustace, historically, has any medicine that doesn't have specific antiviral properties ever been shown to be repurposed to successfully treat any viral disease in history? Well, you're putting me on the spot here. I'd have to think about it. (laughs) In history, Paul. Yeah, like like (laughs) amantadine for influenza is all I thought of. Uh, Amantadine for influenza, but what was that originally for? Uh, I'm not sure what the original indication of that's a very old drug. Yeah. Or was it just for influenza? I couldn't think of one. So it's really, it would be exceptional if any other drug did work against a viral disease. That's the point I'm trying to make yeah, if yeah, it's true. Right. I, I right. can't think of any. So we're getting a lot of questions from people about schools and churches. So schools are now back in session. Universities are or are getting back in session. What does Delta mean for the the best safety of and health, overall health, of students in schools? 
I love Eustace to take that first. <laughs> well, here's here's what I think, um, and and so I think the first Thank point, you. the first point is that nobody in this debate is badly motivated. So no one is trying to harm children. Everyone's trying to do what they think is best, and 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 the rhetoric is 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 horrible on this. Um, I think that whether or not masks work to prevent COVID is one question, and I don't think we have enough data to say whether or not they ab- prevent. Um, in isolation, transmission of COVID from one person to another, and that other mitigation strategies have to be employed like distance and hand hygiene and staying home when you're sick. And everybody, I think, can sign on for those those parts of it. I think that there is an incalculable um, burden um, if you follow the CDC recommendations that everybody who's two years of age and over in a school setting um, Wear a ma- and wear a mask. I don't think you you can measure what that burden is for the child uh, longitudinally or in real time. You can't really ask a two year old like, how does this mask make you feel? How is this uh, affecting your ability to interact with your peers or articulate or to read emotions? So I think those are things that we're not going to know for a while. And and then the other side of that is is you know we want kids to be in school because we know that. Um, that from a developmental and uh, psychological and spiritual standpoint, it's good for them to be together. And if masks prevent thousands and thousands of them from being quarantined, well, then maybe that's the right thing to do so that they're not sent home for every cough, et cetera, they have. Now, the problem I have with that is that there is no limiting principle for it. There's no point at which it ends. There's no there's no start point. There's no end point, and and you sort of have to kind of hug the cactus that this is how we live from now on, um, or for the foreseeable future. And I'm not sure that societally um, that's something that everyone is ready to do. And I think there are many immeasurables. So so in in Paul's in my world, we can measure case rates, and we know how often something is occurring. But these other things that I'm talking about. Um, like the emotional, developmental, psychological, spiritual aspects, the burdens are not quantifiable. And we may not see um, until we see something downstream. And, and it's, a, it's a calculation. It's a trade-off. So in the end, I really have no position on this. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a deep internal struggle that I have. And I, it just depends on, on where I am in the day and, and what I'm worried about on a particular day. And I suspect I'm like most other parents. Eustace, that's pretty middle of the road. Paul, why don't you give us a clear answer? (laughs) (laughs) I have have tried to duck all the school board meetings. I've tried to duck all of these debates because it's, it's, it, it's such a divisive issue. We have such acrimonious debates going on in all of our school boards around the country. I'm going to try and posit a couple of answers to what Eustace just put out there. So um, I, I don't think there's no end point to this. I think there is an end point of um, children uh, under 12 maybe being, uh, you know, it being shown in clinical studies that a vaccine is safe and effective for them, and then they can be eligible for vaccination. Um, I think there is an end point when we are out of marked epidemic surges. So when we get back down to a lower level of transmission in the community, we can look at, you know, backing off on some of these measures. I think Eustace is absolutely right that we, we don't know what the long-term deleterious effects are of masking. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's any good evidence that they're harmful yet, uh, but that may come. But here's what we do know. We do know that kids out of school last year was bad. That That is not a good thing for kids. It's it's. Uh, I think we're going to be seeing a major cost on that, big mental health issues uh, with kids at home poor kids who are really don't have great access to internet accessibility, like just didn't get a year of school. So we need to do our absolute utmost to make sure kids can stay in school. Florida, we just see the reports now, 10,000 kids out of school in the first two weeks there uh, because of uh, outbreaks, cases, isolation, and quarantine. We just can't have that. Like, And if masks might help prevent that, I think the precautionary principle is if they might help prevent that obvious thing happening, bunches and bunches of kids being sent home because of uh, cases and quarantine. Um, if we can, if we have, might be able to prevent that without obvious harm from masking, I think we should be doing it. 
Paul, wasn't the fact that last winter there was only 1% the amount of cases of influenza around the country and that these other childhood viruses like RSV, parainfluenza were way down? Wouldn't that su- suggest that masking does re- reduce these other illnesses that would be sending kids home now because they're sending kids home for any respiratory illness? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, not only did we see basically the elimination of influenza, RSV, and other respiratory viruses last year. I was just, I was just giving a talk to our, um, all of our athletes at the university where I work. And I was talking with the head athletic trainer and he said, you know, they were still trying to field all their sports teams. He said, it was stunning. They had nothing. You know, he says, normally we get one or two or three teams out at various periods for gastrointestinal illness, for other respiratory viruses, for influenza. He said, there was nothing last year. He said it was stunningly remarkable. And that has to be from the hand hygiene, the masking and the other mitigation uh, measures. Eustace? I I don't disagree with a lot of what Paul said. Uh, but I think that the the one point that he made, which is which is really excellent, is is you know the target being community spread, and and we've really hammered you know what is our tool currently to get rid of community spread? It's not masking children, it's having their adult parents who are are vaccine hesitant, unvaccinated, and previously uninfected. Um, encouraging them to to become vaccinated people, and and that again, um, limiting community spread, I think, is incredibly important. And and you know, when we look at what happened with influenza and all these other respiratory viruses, um, the world was very different a year ago. So you know, there's something about having a two year old mask all day or a seven year old mask eight hours a day, and then go home to parents who have been in workplaces where masking is no longer required, or they're going out to restaurants or churches or um, or you know, the parents are going to bars where people are in close contact with lots of unvaccinated people. So there's there's um, some some magical thinking to to get us to believe that masking in school alone is going to produce the same results as last year. So as a society, we we aren't um, all on the same page. Um, so we impose one thing on on children which may or may not have benefit. I don't know how you measure um, harm to a, a three-year-old or a four-year-old who's wearing a mask eight hours a day. Um, and then at the same time, the adults are sort of having a free-for-all and, and go into a smoky bar where there's, you know, three inches rather than three feet between um, them and the next person. So, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's a little more complicated than comparing last year to this year the world is different. Well, and the, the only thing that might be even more contentious than schools, to Eustace's point, is, uh, you know, people outside of schools. What about church? You know, I not to give anybody that idea, but I think a lot of us have been kind of afraid of that. Uh, does this mean do we have to go back to wearing masks at church? You know, uh, there, there, I think you could, you might be able to make a, a, a somewhat more compelling case there. Although uh, I'll qualify that, you know, Tom and I, I remember looked real hard last year for examples of outbreaks related to church, you know, services per se, and really found precious little. You could find things with weddings, funerals. That's a right. different interaction than going to mass. Um, so I, I think that one hour and usually a fairly big space, kind of spaced out. Um, is is maybe not as big a risk as maybe being in a classroom all day. Um, however, there's a lot of people at church who are old with chronic uh, medical conditions, comorbid conditions. And frankly, I know quite a few that aren't vaccinated. Um, I, I think during this Delta surge, which I think is going to really take off here in the next couple of months, we might want to consider uh, masking uh, again during that. But I don't foresee this going on and on and on. Does distancing make a difference with a virus that seems to be acting more like an aerosol than like a droplet spread condition, Paul? So we don't know that yet, but it's you raise a good question. So uh, with this increased con- contagiousness or infectiousness, it seems like it might be able to transmit like an aerosol, which means tiny respiratory droplets that stay suspended in air for longer periods of time. In, in that circumstance, then distancing... Uh, is going to be less effective and a cloth mask is going to be less effective. I mean, when we go to work and if I have to go take, take care of a patient or used has to take care of a patient with an aerosol borne disease like tuberculosis or chicken pox or measles, 
um, we put on an N95 mask. That's what you need to, to block that. The other ones don't really, really block it. But we don't know that. I mean, we're kind of shooting in the dark here a little bit. And again, that precautionary principle, I think, applies. Let's do what we can until we've got more people vaccinated. We're out of the surge and hopefully in a better place in a short period of time. Let's uh, wrap it up here. We got two and a half minutes left. Paul, I'd like you to briefly tell the story of Rob Terstig of Minot, North Dakota. Yeah, this is a, a very tragic uh, case that was uh, played out in our newspapers quite a bit. Um, this was a gentleman who was in his 40s. I can't remember his exact age. I think he was around his mid-40s. Father, 46. 46. Father of three. Um, actually married to a nurse who uh, was in charge of developing uh, the COVID vaccine clinic in one of our health systems. And she was very passionate about that. Um, uh, worked, uh, worked very hard to uh, um, make an efficient uh, place where people could get vaccinated. But her husband was not so much opposed to the vaccine, but just really didn't see himself at risk. He was a healthy guy, um, didn't, didn't think he needed it, kind of put it off. And I think maybe had some concerns about the vaccine. Sadly, he contracted COVID, I believe it was back in May, um, kind of rapidly went downhill, was uh, um, transferred to the intensive care unit. Uh, they weren't able to uh, ventilate him adequately, and he was uh, shipped to Minneapolis-St. Uh, Paul, where he was able to be put on ECMO, uh, this extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's a real last-ditch effort to try and get people oxygen. And sadly, uh, within, I believe it was about three weeks, you know, succumbed to the virus, leaving three children and a widow at home. As he realized in the ICU that he might not make it, he expressed his regrets about not taking the vaccine and asked his wife to please make sure all of their children got the vaccine as soon as they were eligible. And without sort of judging anybody and any of his friends or family or whatever, but he encouraged people to, to take the vaccine from his deathbed. And we're hearing these stories right and left. I mean, there was, I can't remember where this conservative radio talk show host who was very, very vocal uh, against the vaccine, got very, very sick, hospitalized and in the hospital said, you know, I think I made a big mistake here. Uh, I, when I get back onto my show, please, please pray for me, please, you know, uh, send your well wishes. Um, I'm going to talk more about the vaccine. He just died, I think a couple of days ago. Wow. So Eustace, Last thoughts. What do you want listeners to know right now, Eustace? So if I had two or three things to tell people, number one, if you're previously uninfected and currently unvaccinated, please get a vaccine. It is our way out of it. It's a way uh, you'll stay out of our intensive care units, and it is an act of charity to your fellow neighbor. Uh, number two, if you choose not to get a vaccine, and you do become ill, continue to seek help and go to the right places. Pursue monoclonal antibody therapy with your, call your primary care physician or your local emergency department, figure out where you can get it and get in, get it into your body as soon as you can, uh, as soon as you receive a positive diagnosis and don't pursue these other things which are unproven and probably ineffective. And number three, all of us in, in these, in these debates we have, we need to remember charity um, because we're all part of the same human family. And at the end of all of this, we, we still want to be able to love each other, worship together, uh, despite our differences of opinion. Um, we're all part of uh, the body of Christ. That is a great summary. Paul and Eustace, thanks for being with us for this special COVID update on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor. And Tom, I've got to be honest, I think you could write crossword puzzles with some of these uh, trivia questions. This one, <laughs> I, I said, what's, what's he going to do? But this is a good one. Tom, give us the medical trivia question. Yes, Greek for science lovers. What does delta mean when used in scientific equations? Well, delta means change or difference. And the delta variant has made a big difference in this pandemic just when we thought it was winding down. So delta, a difference between two numbers, a difference between two points in time. That's what it means. And now, Andrew, what are your top three takeaways? You know, I, I think Eustace did my job in that regard this time. Um, so, I mean, to, to reiterate a lot of what we're saying, unfortunately, and not what I thought six months ago, but uh, it appears as though COVID is not over. It seems to be getting worse. Eustace is seeing that in the ICU. I'm seeing that in the office. And I think we're all kind of feeling it. And we anticipate it'll probably, unfortunately, get a little bit worse over this fall and winter. So kind of Brace yourself for that and act accordingly. Um, I'd say number two would be the vaccine. You know, a lot of times you'll see things 
such that, you know, maybe the vaccine's only half effective. That's actually not true. It depends what you're measuring. The half effectiveness is from getting sick at all. It's still 90% effective against preventing hospitalization and death. So it's 96%. Yeah, that's Pfizer. That's an A, at least where I went to school. I was homeschooled, yes. but 96% is <laughs> a pretty good grade. And so I would tell folks, if if it's on your mind, I would recommend getting the vaccine because it is safer for sure than getting COVID. And then number three, you know, we, we talked a little bit about masking and other things like that. And I'm not sure where the fall goes, but as we're discussing and trying to figure all this stuff out, let's try and be charitable to everybody because I do think everybody's stressed out and sick of COVID and scared. And we are in this together at the end of it. So trying to act with charity. Yeah, it's like we're on we're both on the same side of the table fighting against a, a common enemy. Uh, we are not each other's enemy here, even though it might feel like it at times. Yeah. And, and that's why I like bringing Eustace on the show. He's so good about the, the human aspect, the relational aspect of this. He is. And, and a lot of this stuff is not clear cut. I mean, and so it is no. a matter of prudence. But the only thing we know for sure is that uh, the disease is bad because that's the part that we get to see all the time, unfortunately. We do. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We invite you to share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, check our website for bonus links and information that we post from each episode. Just click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.